I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. What does a bridge in Kentucky and a wall in El Paso have to do with the 2024 presidential election? Could be a lot, actually. Uh, Really pleased to have uh, Olivier Knox joining us, national political correspondent and the anchor of the Daily 202 for The Washington Post. And you just had to bookmark that. uh, Get on that list. Uh, It's a great way to frame your day. And uh, Olivia, thanks for joining us today. And uh, as always, you're looking at some of the messaging, some of the things that the president might be looking at as he has his eyes a little bit towards 2024. What are we learning? Uh, What does uh, Kentucky and El Paso have to do with 2024? Yeah, so I looked at a couple. First of all, Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Uh, Secondly, um, I looked at two events that the president did in the aftermath of the uh, the midterm elections last November when the Democrats lost the House to Republicans. In the first event, um, I looked at uh, a literal bridge-building event where the president went to Kentucky uh, and surrounded by Democratic and Republican lawmakers, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, talked up his bipartisan infrastructure bill. You know, this uh, this once in a generation investment in American roads and bridges and um, uh, broadband and the like. And he uh, he talked up basically what a little bit of bipartisanship can, can, can do for America. And then I looked at his trip to the border. You know, Republicans have been savaging Biden uh, over his immigration policy since he took office, uh, arguing that his policies are responsible for a, 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 a remarkable increase in the number of undocumented immigrants crossing the southern border. Um, They've been calling on him to visit the border, and so he did so on his way down to a summit in Mexico with the Mexican president as well as the Canadian prime minister. Um, And the point of this is I'm trying to figure out how Biden is positioning himself ahead of 2024. There's this long history of presidents adjusting to midterms, especially bad midterms, and that's what I was trying to look at. Yeah, and let's let's jump into that because there really are some – uh, some role models in terms of how you do that effectively. Of course, in 1994, Bill Clinton uh, made the pivot to the center uh, in that. But walk us through some of that and what that might mean or what that might project in terms of 2024 and where President Biden is. Sure. I think Clinton in 94 is the biggest object lesson. I mean, he Biden's midterm was not nearly as bad as the 94 midterm right. was for was for Bill Clinton. You know, the, the Democrats increased their uh, their Senate seats even though they lost the House. Um, Bill Clinton, that was like a once-in-60-years debacle for the Democrats. So Bill Clinton had to make some pretty radical retooling, knowing that the country had turned against him and knowing that 96 was coming up. And the term that became most associated with 
uh, Bill Clinton's new posture was triangulation. Mm. And the idea behind triangulation was that most Americans are, uh, for lack of a better term, centrists. And so he, he staked out a space that was to the right of traditional Democrats and just to the left of the House Republicans in order to win over disaffected voters. And that's really been one of the modern uh, models. Not everyone's followed it, but it's an interesting sort of baseline from which you can gauge presidential reactions. Um, George W. Bush did fine in his first midterms, uh, actually did historically very well. But uh, 2006 was pretty brutal for him. And one of the first things he did was dump Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, uh, whom Democrats have been calling uh, to be fired or for his handling of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there wasn't a ton of um, legislative activity there, in part because uh, not that long after the EO6 midterms, we had the financial crisis. And the financial crisis imposed its own legislative rules. Mm. It imposed its own bipartisanship. Right. So it was less an adjustment, less of an adjustment from Bush. I did note in a column that one of the casualties in the aftermath of the midterms was a comprehensive immigration reform proposal that Bush had championed. Right. Um, so we get to Obama, who has two bad midterms in 2010 um, and again in, in 2014. And after uh, after 2010, he kind of sort of retools. He called it a shellacking, where Bush had called 2006 a something. Um, and Obama retools a bit. He um, he reaches a consensus, a compromise consensus, on extending the Bush tax cuts with Republicans. Um, his White House denies that he's triangulating, but that's certainly how it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after 20, after 2014, he was much more defiant and much more, I'm going to go this my own way. Um, and so he did things like executive action to restore relations with Cuba, uh, protecting millions of undocumented immigrants from uh, from being uh, deported. But the the it's not really an example. But the historical events following Donald Trump's midterm bad midterm. Uh, now Trump also expanded his uh, saw his Republican majority expand in the in the Senate while he lost the House. But the most interesting dynamic that emerged from that. Was uh, you remember the new NAFTA, the USMCA yeah. deal? So, um... I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. The Trump administration negotiates this with Mexico and Canada and comes back to Congress for ratification. And this dynamic emerges where the democratically controlled House, led by Nancy Pelosi, negotiating with the White House, where Trump really wants a deal. Um, negotiates all kinds of labor and environmental protections. You have this very unusual mm-hmm. alignment on this. Um, it, it, to, to the degree that at one point, Senate Republicans uh, complained bitterly that they were being cut out. Um, and they really read the writing on the wall, which was, Trump really wants a deal, which means he can sell this to our base, which means we're going to have to go along with whatever comes out of this negotiation. And they kind of got, got pushed around yeah. and ultimately... 
the trade deal looked a lot more like what Democrats wanted it to than what Republicans did. Again, that's not a model, but it is an interesting sort of object lesson from the past. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, definitely a transaction pulled off there uh, by uh, former President Trump uh, on that. It definitely didn't lead to a trend or a model, as you said, but it was uh, in classic uh, President Trump fashion. It was a transaction uh, that he had with Nancy yes. Pelosi and, and the House Democrats. So so interesting. So as, as we look forward now, Olivier, and we look at where President Biden is, is, is there anything you see on the horizon uh, that might give us more indication beyond uh, this trip to Kentucky and a trip to the wall? Uh, what else do you see as uh, people anticipate maybe uh, an announcement in a, in a couple of months uh, in terms of what happens for 2024? Right. Well, he's dangled, um, publicly said that he would make his, make his announcement. He says he intends to run, um, but he's not made that formal. We expect him to make that formal in the coming weeks, uh, again, assuming he goes forward with that. Uh, I see no reason to think that he's not. He's teased it so often over the past year that uh, yeah. that I expect he will. Um, I don't think to watch for are, you know, how does his relationship with progressives uh, change mm-hmm. if it does? He has not been shy about disappointing progressives in his first two years in office. Yeah. Um, he vocally opposed defund the police. Um, he um, has not pushed all that hard for federal voting rights uh, legislation. There are other areas where he has sort of not done as much as they would like him to do. Um, but he also hasn't hesitated to lob, lob rhetorical bombs at the Republicans. So I, I, I don't think calling this a pivot to the middle is right. I could be wrong. Um, he's, he, right after I filed, right after this thing went up, was published, um, the White House announced that he was going to be hosting a range of bipartisan, a bipartisan group of mayors. So mm-hmm. maybe, but I think what he's emphasizing is that he's actually a theme from his campaign. Yeah. Um, during the campaign, Biden's argued repeatedly that what democracies have to do now is show that they can deliver for their citizens. Mm. And I think that that's what we're going to see from this White House. We're going to get a kind of getting stuff done approach that highlights bipartisanship when it can be achieved, um, but that definitely focuses on sort of the, the things he's actually delivered, yeah. um, which are not all bipartisan. Some of the stuff is, is Democratic Party line only. Sure. But you're going to hear a lot more. You're going to hear a lot more about, you know, reducing the price of insulin for um, folks on, on Medicare and Medicaid. You're going to hear a lot more about the return of microchip manufacturing to America. You're going to hear a lot more about uh, building up America's electric vehicle capacity. Um, there are going to be things you're going to hear that he got, that he got, and, and the infrastructure stuff. Yes. Um, because if there's anything, if there's anything easy to sell to the public is, you know, that really, really crappy bridge that you drive <laughs> over every day. Well, we're going to make sure it doesn't collapse when you're driving on it. Uh, great stuff. Olivier Knox, national political correspondent, anchor of the Daily 202 for The Washington Post and someone we always look to. Great insight as always. Uh, Olivia, thanks for joining us on a Monday. My pleasure. All right. Uh, we'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. Coming up, thousands of rioters stormed the legislative, judicial and executive branch bu- buildings in Brazil. Is this becoming the worldwide trend? Valentina Sater from the Atlantic Council joins us to talk about that. Coming up next, stick around. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.